from Tim McMahon's game story in ESPN, Second Spectrum Data pinned the probability on Boyan Bogdanovich's shot at 12.6%. He's draped by James Harden, by P.J. Tucker. It was 100% real, and it was fantastic. Entertaining game, and whatever the late fee is to submit that for best picture, the picture of Boyan hoisting the shot, throw it in there. It deserves a mention and a nomination one of the most fantastic photos that you'll see of the entire league. He's the first guy to hit two game-winning shots this season. Boyan Bogdanovich turns the news cycle, has the Jazz soaring after two victories in a row, and now they've got the Mavericks tonight. This is Round Ball Roundup on utahjazz.com. I'm J.P. Chunga, and it's a day where you ought to be celebrating that Bogdanovich game winner. And it's a day without controversy after the victory against the Blazers. This one, nobody can argue, this was phenomenal. Seven-point lead with about three minutes to go. Utah goes up after Donovan Mitchell sinks a mid-range jumper. The Rockets come all the way back, go up after Russell Westbrook finds a phenomenal pass to P.J. Tucker in the corner. Tuck, who has the weight of the world on his shoulders after being the small ball five, hits the shot. Utah has, on the clock, 1.6 seconds left. Just enough time for Bogdanovich to get the shot off on a night where he was struggling. Boyan, just eight points, two of five from three. Two of seven overall. He just hits tough shots, and he did it in that game. Jazz Rockets is going to be a fun outfit to finish the rest of the regular season. Their series concludes in Utah on the 22nd. Small ball makes Houston much more watchable. They look like a Lynch movie watching these two battle. Rudy Gobert's guarding Russell Westbrook. It looks wonky. The way that they're trying to attack, Russ got to the rim a bunch. He played efficiently, scoring 39 points in this game. James Harden, 28-10-10 for a triple-double. He's more effective at finding the open guy as teams are willing to throw two guys at him. Russ is the only non-shooter, at least from three, that's going to be on the floor for this team in the starting lineup. They're surrounding Russ with Harden, House, Tucker Covington. And those are the guys who do it. They play at an incredible pace. The offense is so difficult to deal with. When you see Russ going downhill trying to attack the rim, he's a willing and able passer. You saw it on the last play, at least for them offensively. It's fun to watch the Rockets now. Dare I say it. And the Jazz get the victory. Harden goes 2 of 13 from 3. That may not happen again, but a tremendous defensive effort by the Jazz in that one. Another tremendous effort by Jordan Clarkson, who scores 30 points off the bench. He was cooking in his stint on the floor, scored 18 points across the third and fourth quarters. And listen to him as he phrases it after the game when it appeared as if he was going to come back in after a one-minute rest. He told Quinn Snyder, leave the guys who you have on the floor. I just told him, let them rock. And we were scoring. They was rotating defensively. Uh, you know, I, I did my role. I played my minutes and, uh, you know, try to impact the game as much as I can. Um, you know, they had, it, they had it going at that time. So I just told Coach, man, let them rock. 
he was like, cool. Selfless from Clarkson, and that's more of that Ethan Strauss story in The Athletic where he's talking about the camaraderie of the team, how the locker room is coming together. His 30, much needed. Donovan Mitchell had 24, 10 in the final frame. Rudy Gobert, 12 in 15. And this might be most important. Mike Conley with 20 points, 6 assists, and 5 rebounds. In his last four games, he's averaging 25 and 5 well on his way to getting back to those numbers that we expected from Mike Conley at the beginning of the year. He's getting more comfortable, and as he continues to do that, that is going to raise the ceiling of the team as we've continued to talk here on Round Ball Roundup. We'll get into this more with Skin. These Texas teams very well might be the team that Utah matches in the postseason, and now Houston got a lot more watchable, and Dallas is clearly entertaining with what they have in Luka. A little bit wonky, and now let's go back to what happened on Friday. Portland downed 117-114. to Utah comes out on top in a totally above-board way. No shred of doubt in what happened at the end of the game. No, of course not. It set an Adrian Wojnarowski tweet off in the middle of the night. It caused the entire NBA universe to chide the officials who had a very tough game out there. A goaltending call missed, and the Twitter fingers come out post-game as Damian Lillard and Donovan Mitchell trade barbs online. The only thing to come out of this has to be the posting wars, where you're going to see both fan bases refer to this game endlessly. I do not envy the Portland podcaster who has to talk about that game. wonder what they're saying. Pathetic, absolutely pathetic what they did. Play the sounder. I am having a very bad day. That's me right now, as it was completely pathetic what the NBA did to Damian Lillard after he scores 42 points on a night that was brilliant. I'm sure it's very measured and understanding of the official's plight. Utah's been on the right end of a couple of refereeing decisions. The one in New Orleans that pushed it to overtime. The one where Brandon Ingram probably got fouled at the end of the game. And now this one. These things even out over the course of a season. Heartbreaking if you're Damian Lillard who carries his team. Second night of a back-to-back for them. And Dame's still going off for 42 points. CJ McCollum's adding 27. Gary Trent goes for 16. And mind you, Dame and CJ, they're playing nearly the entire game. Second half, they did not rest. Dame, 43 minutes, 29 seconds on the floor. CJ, 42, 41. And that's all because of Trevor Ariza getting kicked out of the game. They're down to seven men. Insane amount of effort. It's totally understanding why a person would be a Damian Lillard stan. The guy has leadership. He is a cult of personality, and you'll go into battle with that type of player. On Utah's side, all the starters scoring double digits. Donovan, 16. Rudy, 16. Boyan with 27. Joe with 14. And Mike with 18. It was Boyan and Donovan in the fourth. Boyan had a take to make it 114 to 112. And on the second time, once Dame responded, he was the guy that initiated offense 
before Donovan drove to the hoop. There is a clear trust in Boyan Bogdanovich as a big shot maker, as a clutch player. And again, Utah in the clutch continues to show out. Utah's still fourth best in net rating in clutch situations this season. A much-needed win to break that five-game losing streak and get Utah going in the right direction. Interesting things that stood out, Jawan Morgan playing small ball five. He also did this in the Rockets game. He's starting to get more run, and he's a very high IQ basketball player, played a lot with the Stars, showed out in the G League Showcase. Morgan may get more time when it comes to being a small ball type of player. The other thing is that Mountain Mike appears to be playing more with the bench alongside Niang, Clarkson, Bradley, and Joe. He's getting more chances on the ball to play that point guard role where he might not get that option when he's playing along with the starters of Donovan, Joe, and other initiators of the offense. Follow that as we continue this year. Well, that leads us to Skin Wade. He is an analyst with Fox Sports Southwest, radio host in the Dallas area. Skin has great perspective on what it means to be a basketball fan in Texas, Utah taking on Dallas tonight. And I wanted to talk to Skin mostly due to the fact that these teams are bunched up in the Western Conference standings and we might see a whole lot more of the Mavericks come April. So I discuss basketball with Skin and we start out breaking through the passion that led him to picking basketball as his main sport to cover. Well, you know, uh, getting into basketball and then getting into the job are two kind of separate stories. I'll say that getting into basketball was super easy because my dad was a basketball coach. And uh, one of the things that was really unique is that by the time I had gotten older, my dad had gotten out of coaching and gone into business with my grandfather, but all of his roots were basketball. And so all of his friends were basketball coaches. And so a lot of the things that me and my dad did together were basketball related. He was a season ticket holder for the Mavs. A lot of his buddies stayed in the business and, and had great success coaching. I think probably the most notable was Billy Tubbs, who took Oklahoma to a national championship game. And I think that was 88. Um, his buddy, Jim Haller was the coach at Baylor and uh, John Underwood went on to be one of the basketball commissioners of the big 12. But so these are the guys that uh, were around when I was growing up. And so I grew up going to basketball camps. And then when I got older, coaching at basketball camps and, uh, you know, officiating games, playing basketball, it's just a, a big part of my life. And I had a really great dad that never, ever forced me into it. So it was all really my passion and something that he and I shared together. So it was a huge part of my childhood. And uh, when I got older and started going to college and those things, I, I actually got off into uh, me and my buddies. I do a radio show with here in Dallas. His name is Ben Rogers. He's the other part of the Ben and Skin Show. We were actually in a rap group together. Uh, so we've done, we've done a lot of wild things, but we kind of got into media in the late 90s. And one of our first prominent gigs was as the Dallas Mavericks postgame show on KTCK in Dallas. And, uh, you know, I guess if you're doing this thing, you kind of got to toot your own horn a little bit. But I was probably the most knowledgeable basketball guy in the DFW that was doing media. And I think one of the things that set me apart is you have to remember this is before the Internet explosion. But I was very, very knowledgeable 
about the collective bargaining agreement. I actually took the time to read it several times over. So when mainstream media people were suggesting trades that weren't even possible under the rules of the CBA, I was able to shoot those down. So I had sort of established myself as a an NBA expert in Dallas media, and Cuban is an outside-the-box thinker. And so when he wanted to add a younger voice to the broadcast that sort of represented a new generation, I was kind of, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, an obvious choice based on you know, what the Dallas media was like. And I've, I've always said this, if it wasn't for Bill Simmons and the way that he changed, you know, uh, people reading about basketball or just a way to integrate the internet with basketball experience, then I never get the opportunity and Cuban probably never thinks of me in those terms. So I was very fortunate to be added to the Dallas Mavericks broadcast halfway through Rick Carlisle's first year. And I've been doing it ever since. And it's just been an extraordinary ride. And, you know, I cherish every moment of it. I feel so blessed to, to for them to not only allow me to to do the things that I do and be on the broadcast, but it, it, I look at it as a tremendous responsibility. And it's something that means a lot to me. And so I, I, I put a lot of work. And, and it's easy because I'm passionate about it. So it's really been a, a pretty incredible ride for me. What's changed with basketball in Dallas to go from having to move to SMU Stadium to where you have your own building and all the investment that's gone into winning championships and having Mark Cuban as an owner? Well, you know, uh, Mavericks basketball that historically is very strange. You know, um, the 80s, there was a rabid fan base here. And when they played at Reunion Arena, they were called Reunion Rowdies. And in fact... Just, uh, you know, if you have some folks that are listening to your podcast, you know, we had great matchups with Frank Layden's jazz teams. And back then, divisional games were more important. So you would play, the Mavericks would play the jazz six times, uh, if you can imagine that, in one season. You play your division teams more. And I actually, uh, even though they were division rivals, you know, you have that, I guess, animosity, competitive animosity towards them. But I was a huge uh, Dr. Duncanstein fan because uh, I watched him play at Louisville and you guys had a great backcourt before Stockton got there and then Mark Eaton this is the days when big centers were clogging up the lanes and uh, Mark Eaton was a big nemesis but um, those were those were fun teams to watch but you know the Mavericks at the end of the 80s they had a, a seminal player Roy Tarpley that unfortunately had a bad drug addiction and it really torpedoed the team uh, Mark Aguirre had gotten crossways with management and they traded him to the Detroit Pistons if you want to come full circle for Adrian Dantley and Dantley didn't want to come here and that was the beginning of the end for the Mavericks and when they got to the 90s they were the second worst uh, professional sports franchise behind I believe the Arizona Cardinals for the entire decade of the 90s they were horrible back to back one season I think it was 11 wins the next season was 12 wins I mean just brutal and when uh, Don Nelson came in, I'm guessing that was about 97, somewhere in there, um, traded out Mashburn, traded out Jimmy Jackson. Jason Kidd had already been traded by the previous regime. And so he uh, and his son Donnie were responsible for rebuilding the thing. And uh, sports fans in Dallas were very reluctant to believe in the Mavericks because they had been burned for a decade. And so every move that Nelly made was very criticized. 
But on the same day, and it was really Donnie, his son, that orchestrated this, they acquired Steve Nash and Dirk Nowitzki on the same day. And if you think about it, I, I would uh, bet you can't find anywhere in the history of the NBA someone making an acquisition for two MVPs on the exact same day. But that changed the course of things. But the perception of the Mavs was so bad locally, and, and big prominent media figures were, uh, you know, ah, get Nelly out of here and his son, and boy, this is a joke. But to Cuban's credit, when he bought the team and took over in the very early part of 2000, he did not blow Nelly out, and everybody thought he would. But Nelly had already put Michael Finley, Dirk Nowitzki, and Steve Nash in place. They just needed Cuban's energy and his wherewithal to be like, we're going to do anything it takes. I'll spend any amount of money. We're going to build a winner. And the 2000s were very, very good. It changed the perception. Uh, they made the finals in 2006 and should have won, but that was very disheartening. But I think one of the real testaments to Donnie Nelson and Mark Cuban, and if you want to put Carlisle in there too, you can, even though he didn't go to both finals. The Mavericks in the, in the era in which you had dominant teams that were always in the finals, the Mavericks went to the finals twice, five years apart, and there was only two guys that were on both teams, and that was Dirk and Jason Terry. So imagine getting to the finals, losing, and then being able to completely reconfigure your team in the era of dominant franchises and going back to the finals and winning it five years later. And I think that's the number one testament to – the abilities and the wherewithal of Mark Cuban and Donnie Nelson as a duo and a collective working together. And so, you know, Cuban re-energizing the franchise with his money and his energy and his spirit uh, was huge coming out of the 90s, which was just a basketball wasteland for Dallas Mavericks fans. Well, and now the bright future of having Luka Doncic as a young star, an MVP-type level player. What is his best strength as a player? Wow, that's a great question, um, because I don't know that I have a, an obvious answer. You know, he is, it's easy to say, well, uh, he's a transcendent player, but what does that actually mean? And so one of the things, uh, that the, the things that Donnie Nelson talks about when he talks about basketball players, he just talks about their, their basketball acumen or their ability to see things before they develop. And he always used to compare it to just uh, the way a computer's hard drive is wired. And he always talks about their wiring. And there's certain guys that are extraordinary athletes that can make things happen, but they don't necessarily see one or two plays ahead. And there's only a few guys that can do it. And I would say in terms of point guards, there's only two in the history of the Mavericks that could do it. And that was uh, Jason Kidd. I think Harper should go in that category, but you know, I was going to say Kidd and Luca, and then like as much as I love Jason Terry, he's one of my all-time favorite Mavericks. He didn't see two plays ahead, and so they put him in a role to be a score and facilitator, but not orchestrate an offense. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Those are very. I mean, obviously, I'm preaching to the choir here. You guys know all about John Stockton. John Stockton saw two saw two plays ahead. And so he would steer defenses and make decisions based on what that counteraction is. And there's only a few people currently playing in the NBA that look at the game that way and see it that way. And Luka Doncic is one of those people. And I don't know that, you know, I didn't believe that, you know, coming out of that draft, 
I wanted to get one of those big guys because they're hard to get the modern big guy that can pop and shoot threes and roll hard at the basket and can play small ball. And there was a bunch of those guys in that draft. You know, I, I had no way of really understanding how Luca sees basketball and how basketball flows through him. And so you really can't fully, in my opinion, fully comprehend that until you watch the guy. And, and one thing that really stood out to me, you know, he won an MVP in a grown man's league, the second best league in the world, as a 19-year-old. That's extraordinary. That is extraordinary. And I remember the very first time that Luca played in a game in front of me, uh, it was the first preseason game, and, and the Mavericks were playing the Beijing Ducks. And it was at the AAC, and he's warming up, and he walked, and I hadn't talked to Harp all summer. And Luca's walking over to the bench, and Harp goes, that guy right there can take coaching. And it's a real you know, basic thing. You know, what does that mean, take coaching? But what he was saying was he already had the mind of an adult as a 19-year-old. And so you can't – you'll see a lot of coaches kind of try to break down young players and rebuild them in the mold that they want. And what Harp was saying is you can't do that with that guy because he's already beyond it. And so the coach has to approach him differently and adapt what he does to that because that is extraordinary and that is rare. That was Harp's way of saying that guy has already arrived. That guy, can you can yell at him, you can do whatever. He already knows what it is he's supposed to do. You can't break his spirit, you can't alter him, and you can't stop him. And, and that's a, a really extraordinary observation that Harp made. And it played out exactly like that. And so I feel sorry for a guy like Dennis Smith Jr. who loved the kid and his career has definitely taken a hard, hard right turn. But he's, he doesn't see the game the way Luca does, and so he was suddenly expendable. And that's a really hard thing for a 20- or 21-year-old to try to grasp, right? But Luca showed up as an adult basketball mind at the age of 19. And that is extraordinary, and that is what I mean when I say he's transcendent. And so he just thinks basketball on a different level. And what that has done is it has elevated everybody else in the organization from coaches to players to broadcasters. He has elevated everybody to a higher level because he is truly extraordinary. It seems very similar to the story of Donovan Mitchell being very coachable and willing to go into a film session where he would love to get ripped by Quinn Snyder. He wants that to get better so that he can progress in his own way as already having so much put on him. What's been the difference with Luca off the floor having to deal with that ankle injury? Well, I think for Luca, the difference is that, you know, Donovan flew under the radar. Um, and I know the Mavericks brought him in to work him out, but they never consider, uh, seriously considered drafting him, which is obviously a mistake. He's a great player. And the point you made about wanting to be a great player, uh, I think is, you know, it's, it's, fit, it fits. And, you know, I should just say this to your listeners. I'm a big basketball consumer. I adore your team. I love watching the jazz play. I, uh, <laughs> I actually, when I was a kid, I went to basketball camp uh, at Lawrence, Kansas. Larry Brown was the coach there, and Quinn Snyder was a player at Duke, and he was one of the counselors uh, and wow. actually coached you know, our division when he was at Duke. 
And I think it's real interesting because you look at what was going on at Lawrence at the time. Larry Brown was there. Greg Popovich was there. R.C. Buford was there. And so we're talking about uh, culture, right? We're talking about a belief system and a structure that is a winning structure. So when Quinn Snyder left, I believe it was Missouri, he went and he was a coach for San Antonio at the time. It was called the D-League. He was a coach for their D-League team, which a lot of people would look at it as, well, that's a step down. No, what he's doing is he's redefining his outlook and what he believes about basketball culture. And if you look at the Utah Jazz organization, since the day that he arrived, there's a reason that you find guys like, you know, Royce O'Neal. And I know Dennis Lindsay's a big part of this too, and I respect him. Uh, but you look at guys like O'Neal, and you look at guys like Ingles, and you look at guys that you identify as, well, this is a player, but this is a player that fits our culture. And that's how you create a winning structure. And so just as a basketball consumer and someone that really appreciates coaching because of my family lineage and that sort of stuff, I am in deep admiration for the jazz organization. And I love watching you guys play. Um, so uh, I kind of got sidetracked on all that, but that's why they identified Donovan Mitchell for things that exist outside of his explosiveness, right? Like he's an explosive player. And if you want to make Dwayne Wade comparisons, all that is fine but they also identified something else. They identified what you described as something that fits into their culture. And I always look at this as part of the Greg Popovich tree. I love the phrase, we're looking for players that have gotten over themselves. And, you know, we're dealing in an industry where I can remember a time period where a player never, ever, ever referenced his quote unquote individual brand. And so I'm not knocking anybody. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. And we live in America and you have a limited amount of time to maximize your earning potential and all those things. Are, if that is important to you, that, that's fine and good. But all that is counterintuitive to being a part of a team and a part of an organization because that is about individualism. And so, you know, Pop used to talk about finding guys that had, quote unquote, gotten over themselves. Dirk Nowitzki was that kind of guy. By the time Jason Kidd came back here, he was that kind of guy in some respects. Jason Terry is a team player. He's that kind of guy. When we won a championship, we had Tyson Chandler. He's that kind of a guy. And so I, from the outside looking in, that's what Rudy Gobert strikes me as. He strikes me as that kind of a guy. You guys went and identified Mike Conley Jr. He's always struck me as that kind of guy. Joe Ingles strikes me as that kind of guy. Y'all have identified people that have, quote, unquote, gotten over themselves. And they fit into your structure. And so, you know, Donovan Mitchell is a way different player stylistically than Luka Doncic, but he fits what you guys need and what you guys do. Uh, and he's a great fit. I, I think he's a way different player than Luka, but they're on a sim similar plane in terms of how they elevate the people around them. And that's such a unique thing to find in basketball. There are so many similarities between these two teams. You identified one with. Quinn, I see a lot of the same characteristics with Rick Carlisle. So Carlisle is, you know, there's different aspects to coaching. Um, and we can sit here and debate what are the most important parts of all that. And I also think it kind of leads to the idea of, well, what level is the guy coaching at? In the NBA, you do have to – Carlisle has always uh, been averse to say saying that he – manages someone or uh 
you know, he, he never wants to use any sort of terminology that shades towards they're underneath him and he and he is telling them what to do because the NBA is is a game where, let's face it, I mean, agents are incredibly powerful in the NBA. That's not good for teams. I mean, it's good for players and making money. It's good for the agent, but it's not good for teams. Uh, and it's certainly the way the thing has evolved, and that's just a matter of fact. I'm not bemoaning it. It's the reality of what the game is. So that's an aspect of coaching. Coming up at the right play at the right time. Uh, anticipating what the other team is going to do and having a counter for that preparation, um, not having a system that's too complicated. I think one of the things that I really admire the most about Rick Carlisle is that uh, on the outside, he comes off sometimes very prickly and sometimes, uh, you know, unfriendly or gruff or whatever. But I think he's got a lot happening in that head of his. I mean, he's processing a lot at one time. Uh, and one of the things I really admire about him is he's perceived, I think, as being it's his way or the highway. Whereas if you look at the style of basketball the Mavericks have played in the time he's been here, he has done nothing but adapt, right? When he got here, so when he replaced Avery, the offense was very stagnant and there was not a lot of ball movement. and It was a lot of ISO crap. And that's why Avery, quite frankly, had run his course. He was really great for this team and really great for Dirk, but it was time for him to go. And so back then, you know, you're talking about 2008 or 2009, whenever this is, and the idea is, all right, well, we're the ball stagnant. Let's get some ball movement. Okay, let's start incorporating principles of the Princeton offense. Well, that's fine and good if you have guys that can pass. If you don't have a bunch of good passers, especially high post passers and bigs that can see the floor, Princeton ain't going to work for you. So he gets here, tries to install the Princeton, and it's a cluster. And two weeks later, he scraps everything. And, all right, we're going to go to this because his basketball acumen is just vast and, and extensive. So he's got a lot of different things that he can go to. And he had a reputation, I think, of being heavy-handed. But I think it just depends on who the players are. And if he trusts the players – he does pull back a little bit. And I think there's no better example of that than Jason Kidd and the 2011 squad and what they ran, which they were referring to as flow basketball. And flow basketball is a series of actions that is designed to be free-flowing and hard for the other team to sit on through scouting because it's more spontaneous. You know, when you get to the playoffs, you really key in and you structure your defenses to take away the best stuff. But if you have a more free-flowing offenses with spontaneous action, it's harder to sit on those actions, and the excellence of the player will shine through. Well, after the championship team, they started doing some restructuring, and there's various point guards in here that have different strengths and weaknesses, so some of that went away. Well, now, if you want to talk about go full circle to what we were talking about 10 minutes ago, Luca's basketball acumen is such that we can go back to more free-flowing uh, you know, type of concepts and have it be more spontaneous. And, you know, like uh, if you see pistol-type actions on the sideline between two guards, man, J.J. Brand, Devin Harris did some great backdoor stuff with that. Those are free-flowing actions that happen in the course of transition. And so what by having a player the caliber of Luka and then uh, a big like Kristaps Porzingis that can shoot from extreme range, you're suddenly opening up the floor and creating opportunities for guys to dance. And so, you know, that's what 
you know, Rick's vision is, is we want a series of actions that are harder to sit on. And right now the Mavericks are young and that's why they make mistakes at the end of games. They'll get over that. I remember going through all that with Dirk and Finley and Nash, but those, those types of actions that are harder to sit on and more free flowing, you put excellent players in positions to shine. And that's what this thing is structured and geared towards. On that game a couple of weeks back was just a wonderful chess match between those two coaches and teams. KP was going so far out that it brought Rudy away from the paint, which the Jazz really want to do and and are trying to emphasize defensively. It allowed Dallas to jump out to that lead. And then once Rudy adjusted, you see it all culminate with the block that he had on DeLon Wright to seal the game. What interests you most between the Jazz and the Mavericks, which could be, when it comes to the postseason, one of the matchups? Yeah, uh, that specific play you're referencing, I think, is one of the more extraordinary plays you will see all year long. Amazing. Not only was it a game-defining play, his ability to recover, and because that's not a little bitty dude. DeLon's like, what, 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, and had a significant angle and Rudy just made an extraordinary play. Um, and, and I think also, too, you know, that kind of hinted at some of the issues down the stretch that the Mavericks are having that they're just going to simply have to overcome, right? They're going to have to figure out what does and doesn't work, what gets taken away, and where their strengths are at the end of games. That was, that was um, on the verge of being one of the best wins for the Mavericks, and it ended up being a gut-wrenching loss because of the position <laughs> you're in and just how important all that was. Um, I, as a Maverick fan and someone that wants to see them succeed, has minimal interest in a Mavericks Jazz series of the first round because uh, your squad has been through a lot. And I think uh, the, the wars, so to speak, and I think where you guys are really going to get the advantage of Mike Conley Jr. is going to be in the playoffs. I've said this a million times. If Mike Conley Jr. does not get hurt in that Golden State Warriors-Memphis series, I'm not so sure Memphis doesn't win that series, and I'm not Mm -hmm. so sure that dynasty isn't put on hold. If you go back and look at that series, the Mike Conley Jr. injury changed it all. Um, I'm a big fan of his. He's rock solid. Um, I think that, you know, quite frankly, I think it's the Lakers or Clippers – uh, conference to lose, and I would lean to more towards the Clippers. I think they have the best team in basketball. I think Denver and Utah are clearly the next two teams, and I think I've just named four teams. So my original hope of a Mavericks Rocket series in the first round, which I think would be fun to watch and exciting, but I think that's a team that the Mavericks are confident against, and I think they have their shortcomings, just like the Mavericks have their shortcomings, but I think that's a quote-unquote winnable series. I think Utah and Denver are winnable series. I don't think the Mavericks are greatly outmatched, but I think that the point in the arc where the Jazz and the Nuggets are is further along than where the Mavericks are. So when I look at these things, I just think about what is the best way to achieve the kind of success I want to see. And so, you know, where I, if you'd asked me a month ago, I thought it was very possible that a Rockets-Mavericks first-round series could happen. Man, the Jazz just cranked it up a notch. And uh, whatever issues y'all were distressing about in the first month to six weeks of the season dissipated. You saw how good this team really is. So, um, you know, I, I think 
I think the Clippers and the Lakers exist on a higher plane. I think the Jazz and the Nuggets are better than the Mavericks, but I think those are series where the Ma- I think they would be good competitive series. And I think if you know if you can remove your emotional ties and your uh, your fandom, you can step back and go, damn, that would be a really great series. Uh, those are six and seven game uh, caliber type series. That's the beauty of the West. Yep, it's great, man. It's a really, really great time in NBA history. It's it, it's it's incredible. He is an analyst for Fox Sports Southwest. He is Jeff Skin Wade on utahjazz.com. Jeff, thank you so much. Hey, anytime, man. I enjoyed it. Thanks to Skin Wade for joining Roundball Roundup. You can thank him on Twitter, at Skin Wade. What a story Quinn Snyder is as somebody who's coaching at this level. He's been around so many winning coaches and so much great culture as Skin put it. Him just being at that basketball camp when Snyder's at Duke and he's around NBA level and champions of Larry Brown, R.C. Buford, Greg Popovich. Without coaching in the Olympics, can you beat that staff? Because that's the only time that you get better brain trust of coaches. It's the reason why guys like ESPN's Jay Billis says Quinn is the smartest player that he's ever been around. And Jay's been a grad assistant under Coach K. He's met as many bright coaches coming up in the college game as anybody. Quinn Snyder's right there with him, even with a hoarse voice as he was last night. Thanks to Skin Wade of Fox Sports Southwest. Just a good energy that he brings and the excitement that he has for basketball in Dallas. It's replicated by thousands upon thousands in that area and matched here in Utah with the passion that we have from our fan base. Forecasting the rest of the week, not only do they have the Mavericks, Miami coming up on Wednesday. That team has additions from Andre Iguodala and Jay Crowder. Crowder had 18 last night. Iguodala in his debut, 2.6 rebounds. They were shorthanded against the Blazers without Jimmy Butler, Tyler Hero, and Myers Leonard. Could be available come Wednesday, but they also have a game tonight against the Warriors. And that's likely to end their three-game losing streak. That club hasn't seen that type of skid this entire year. I'm sure that's the type of team that wants to get to the All-Star break and reboot. And of course, after that, two Jazz men are in Chicago playing for Team Yanis against Team LeBron. First three quarters are independent of themselves. Once we get to the fourth... It's all added up together, so I guess they aren't independent. And then plus 24, that's the target goal. First to that number, if it's 195, that would mean the target heading into the fourth quarter will be 124. First there wins the game. This is a new experience for all of us, so let's just go hand in hand and have a good time. Make sure to catch us on utahjazz.com for all of the news heading out of All-Star as we are following Rudy and Donovan in their first midseason classic experience. That does it for this edition of Round Ball Roundup. Like and subscribe. Five-star reviews. It's all I ask of you. Enjoy a replay of Boyan's Game Winner. I'm J.P. Chunga. Until next time, bye for now. Here we go. Who's going to take this shot to try to tie or win? Outside to Bogey. He's crowded. Three. Oh! At the horn wins in Houston. Ingles will inbound. 1.6 seconds left. Down by two. Ingles holding. 
fakes a pass, finds Bogdanovich, contested three. Good! Boyan Bogdanovich! Boyan Bogdanovich! Say it again! Boyan Bogdanovich! Holy cow! Straight away three from 30 feet, contested by two defenders, and the Jazz win! Wow! I wasn't supposed to be on the court on the, on the last play, the way I played whole game, but that's the... That's the coaching staff, they believe in me, they, they gave me opportunity to shoot. He's such a competitor, and you know, I, I could, you know, tell him to keep playing if he needs to hear that. It, he knows how much I trust him. How would you rate that buzzer beater? Better than the Milwaukee one. <laughs>